Hi, everyone. I wanted to pop on here before you started listening to the actual episode uh, and just say hi. And to let you know that there are some technical issues with this episode, I am aware of that. And we're going to get that all cleaned up as time goes on. But it's the first time I've ever had a guest on the show. And so, you know, it's a learning process, just trying to get better at it every single time. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. There's a lot of good content. I know it's extra long episode, but I think it's worth it. I think we have a lot of good stuff on here. So enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Magic Music Review Podcast. I'm Jim Spangler, your host. Join me each episode as we talk about our love of Disney music. It could be a song, a movie, a short film, a Broadway show, a Disney theme park, or one of the countless other forms Disney music takes. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey through the magic of Disney music on the Magic Music Review. Hey everybody, it's Jim Spangler back at you with the Magic Music Review, uh, Season 2, Episode 1 of the Magic Music Review, and I have a special guest with me today, a dear friend, Aaron Kaplan, who is a musician, an educator, orchestrator, music director extraordinaire, uh, much smarter about music than I am. Um, and I'm really excited to have him. I'm so excited you're here, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And we're talking about one of our favorite movies. Yes. Um, we're going to talk about The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yes. Uh, and we're actually doing two episodes on this. Correct. Yeah. Uh, for those of you that don't know, there is a musical version of this, a stage musical version of this. And that's that's why we're doing two episodes, because uh, it deserves two episodes. It's, it's that grandiose and majestic. It really does deserve two episodes. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really underappreciated show. Completely. Movie. Very, yeah. Yeah, and, and why do you think that is? You know, I think I, I think it was it was just coming after sort of the the Disney the beginning of the Disney Renaissance. So you had your Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin out, and then after that in Lion King, I think they wanted to tackle um, some more some mature more mature content like Pocahontas, right? Which was um, right before it, which came out a year before it, and then Hunchback. And I think for whatever reason, as they foc- as it focused more on, I guess, older or more mature themes, it, it didn't connect as much. Which is a shame, because it's, for me, it's I think it's Alan Menken's, Menken's strongest score. I, I absolutely agree. I, I absolutely love it. And I think the depth of what he wrote, what he and um, Stephen Schwartz wrote, is far and above what any, what any of their previous work. Yeah. Uh, or Alan's previous work, and uh, Ashman, and with Rice... Um, so I think it was great. So a little bit about uh, the history. Uh, it was released in on June 21st of 1996, and it's the 34th animated uh, Disney animated feature. I always feel like there were more before that. Yeah. I, I always feel like it's a really low number, but Pixar wasn't included in all those counts at right. that time. Yeah. So um, And it, it used to, there were many years between animated films back in the 50s. You know, right. Six was, years before Sleeping Beauty, there was a break, you know. Exactly. Ex- kind of like this podcast, months between podcasts. <laughs> That's right. Um, so uh, it's based on Victor Hugo's uh, 1831 novel by the same name. Um, it was directed by Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale, um, who directed Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. So... Fine directors. That is my yes. favorite animated movie of all time. Yes. So, uh, 
Um, and we could talk about that for days. I haven't oh. done a podcast oh, on that well, yet. So I'll have to bring you back again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, the score was written by Alan Menken. Um, as we said, one of his finest. And the songs were written by Alan Menken and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. Um, they also collaborated on Pocahontas, which came out, as we said, the year before. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that those two were the collaborators when Disney was trying to make a more adult, more serious movie because Pocahontas was kind of in that frame also they wanted yes. a more serious thing yeah and you know I was just watching an interview um on YouTube with Alan Menken and with Stephen Short separately kind of in, in preparation for this and um they had auditioned a couple different uh, uh lyric partners with Alan Menken um and then someone suggested Stephen Schwartz because he also came from Broadway um and They both say that it it was a good match, but at first, I guess with any new collaborator, you're always kind of working out the uh, the kinks. And I'm sure it's hard because Stephen Schwartz is obviously a composer in his own right with Wicked and Pippin and Godspell. Yeah, he's got a few credits. Yeah, he does. He's a little success. Yeah. (laughs) That little thing called Wicked. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Alone. Just that alone. (laughs) Um, So uh, the screenplay was written by committee. I usually don't... I hate that, honestly, because it it always... it always looks and sounds like committee. Yeah. Like, I feel like they overthink things tremendously. But mm-hmm. the story was written by Tab Murphy. Um, and then Tab Murphy, Irene Mecky, uh, Bob Judiker, uh, Noni White, and Jonathan Roberts wrote the, wrote the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not horrible. I mean, it's a good screenplay because it's, it's yeah. such a solid story. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, sometimes it feels like multiple voices writing yeah, and that's totally. that, that bothers me. Uh, the movie, um, like we said, explores some pretty mature themes. It, <laughs> this kills me. It it explores like sin and lust and damnation mm-hmm. and infanticide. I mean, he wants to kill Quasimodo at the beginning, right? Right, <laughs> and at the end, right? Right. I right. mean, uh, it's crazy. Um, so it's pretty deep, pretty heavy stuff. Um, it had grossed three hundred twenty-five million dollars worldwide in its mm-hmm. initial release. Yeah. Um, it received the Golden Globe nomination and Oscar nominations for Alan Menken's score, which I love. I think mm. it's so glorious. Uh, and it received pretty positive critical response, but public didn't agree. Yeah, Roger Ebert gave it four stars, and Siskel gave it three and a half stars. Yeah, it's got a seventy-eight percent fresh on yeah. Rotten Tomatoes, since that's the standard that we use now. Right, apparently. Um, apparently, yeah. <laughs> You know, as I was doing research, I did not realize the uproar that the Christian community had, the Christian right community or whatever, evangelicals, whatever you'd like to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize the uproar. I didn't realize that they were like telling people not to go see it and such. Right. Yeah. It was, it, it created a quite a, a, a stir. Yeah. It was crazy. Crazy. Um, I just don't remember that. I don't know why I don't remember yeah. that. Um I guess, it, you know, the themes were pretty heavy duty. So, yeah. uh, and the album was released on May 28th, 1996 and went to uh, number 11 on the Billboard 200. Hey, nice. So that's, yeah. Some that's, people bought CDs. Some people bought some CDs. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the voice cast because I think mm. it's important in this to talk about. Um, Tom Hulse plays Quasimodo. How about that? <laughs> Totally surprised me when they cast yeah. that. A young Amadeus Mozart, Wolfgang, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not at all what I thought it would be. Um, And they actually made, I don't know if you know this or not, they actually made him do a demo, a singing demo. Really? Before, yeah. He says when they when they, um, uh, when they they auditioned him, because they auditioned uh, Mandy Patinkin for it. Really? I did not know that. 
That would be a very different Quasimodo. That would be a very different Quasimodo. Oh, <laughs> and and Mandy Patinkin just basically said he couldn't do it. Right. Uh, so uh, which was a good choice. Yeah. I don't think they would have should have chosen him anyway. But anyway, um, it's a hard voice part. It's Quasimodo. a really hard Out voice there part. Goes. It's, high, it's high. high yeah. yeah, it's really nice. Um, but yeah, they said that they wanted a different sounding quasi, a younger sounding Quasimodo because in the book Hugo specifically says he's twenty. Right. So, um, but Tom said that when they went, went in, this is just a piece of trivia. Sorry, I'm full of that. Please. When he went into audition, he says he sat down to read, and he said all of a sudden everybody closed their eyes and looked down, and he was like, "What is going on? What the hell is going on?" <laughs> <laughs> Probably but, thinking, "Oh, what have I done?" I know exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then he said, um, uh, and then he said he realized that uh, they had the storyboards on the floor. So when they auditioned anybody, they auditioned them with their eyes closed, and then they would open their eyes after they started to look at the storyboard to see if they could they see, see it. if they could see it or That's not. Great. Yeah, I thought that was I had never knew that about them. Yeah, uh, Demi Moore is Esmeralda, mm -hmm. uh, the speaking voice of Esmeralda, right. and they cast her because they wanted a huskier voice. They'd had all these princesses with lovely, light, beautiful voice, and they right. felt like Esmeralda needed the huskiness, but she couldn't sing it. Did Did you know that she actually tried to sing it? I did. I did know that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They cast the uh, Molly uh, Heidi Mollenhauer, who is a New York cabaret singer. Yeah. And, you know, when you listen to God Help the Outcast, which I can hardly wait to get to that song. Oh, yeah. She, it's really pretty good. I mean, it yeah. sounds almost... There are some diction things that, to my ear, because I'm so attuned to it, right. I can tell that it's not her. But for the most part, it's an easy transition. Yeah, and it's... And it, and it works because Esmeralda she isn't a princess. She and she should right. you know, as a gypsy. You want you don't want a you don't want that tr musical theater performer that a lot of you know the Disney singing voices Jerry Orbach and Angela Lansbury and Jimmy right. Kuhn, who's Pope right. Honest, a singing voice. Right. Um, you want a different kind of sound, and cabaret singers tend to have a because it's a more intimate setting, a, right. a darker sound. Right, exactly. Yeah. I love it. I think she does. I think she does a beautiful oh, yeah. job. Uh, Tony J is Judge Claude Frollo. Mm -hmm. uh, he great was, voice. Oh my God! Like the most rich bass mm -hmm. sound. Even it, when he speaks, he's great. Great villain. The, the, and that that is such a great bass role. Oh, we'll talk about the show later. Yeah, yeah. It, it truly is. Um, Kevin Klein is Captain Phoebus. I can't. I mean, he, whatever he does, I love. Yeah. Hilarious. He's just yeah. he's just wonderful. Yeah. Um, Paul Candle was uh, Clopin. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a Broadway actor. Yes, um, he was in the Who's Tommy. He was in the Who's Tommy exactly, and that's how they found him. Right, because they heard him in that. Yeah, and he's got some the oh, highest notes in the show. Lord, he's got some high notes. I mean, and uh, and he does a really nice job of mixing that falsetto and and a smooth mm. transition into yes. that. Yeah, you know, he does a really great job. Uh, Charles Kimbrough, Jason Alexander, and Mary Wicks as Victor Hugo and Laverne. Um, yeah, which Victor Hugo. Oh, I know Victor and Hugo. And it took me, you know, it took me the longest time to get it. it I didn't, I like, I'm sure there were people that were like, Oh, Victor Hugo. I get it. I took me forever yeah. uh, to get that. Um, and Jason Alexander, to me, Jason Alexander makes that trio. Oh, totally. And I think, and, and it's almost obvious that there was improvisation that he did because there are things that they throw in oh, yeah. that you're like, there's no way they scripted that. No, there's no way he was, yeah. he was brilliant. Yeah. Um, and uh, Jane Withers, Provided some remaining dialogue for Laverne, right. and then anything post movie uh, right. she has Mary done. Wicks yeah, away, right? yeah, because Mary Wicks passed away. Right. 
David Ogden Steers is the Archdeacon. Okay, now you're going to laugh at me when I tell you this. I was listening to this on the way. Um, I was running errands this morning, and I was listening to it in the car, and I'd never paid attention to who the Archdeacon was, ever. Mm-hmm. And on my... Because I was Bluetoothing it onto my car, and it said, um, you know, David Ogden Steers. And mm-hmm. I was like, what? Yeah. And then, of course, when I listened to it, I went... Oh, of course. Of course. Of course it is. A Cogsworth. May yeah. he rest in peace. He just passed away he a week or two ago. He just passed away. What a great loss oh, I that know. was. Love David Ogden Steers. Yeah. Um, Frank Weller was, Welker was Jolly. I love that they give Jolly a, a voice credit. A voice credit. For the, the goat. <laughs> For the baz that they did. Um, <laughs> makes me laugh. Uh, and then some. there were some extras, some Corey Burton and Bill uh, Fagerbach were the British and Oafish guards, the guards that that the horse sits on all the time. Mm. Uh, and Gary Trusdale mm. voiced one of my favorite characters in the movie. Which one? <laughs> the old heretic. Oh, yes, yeah. in the top of the scene. <laughs> and at the end when he falls in the hole at the end. I love that. It, it totally makes me laugh. Yes. It totally makes me laugh. All right, so that's... Um, that's it. That's a good history, a good overview of the of yeah. the movie. So let's talk about... Let's talk about music. Let's talk about um, music. So the Bells of Notre Dame, the opening... It starts off with chorus. Yeah. It starts off with with a choral chant. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Right. And and what 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 can you tell me about that? What do you know about that? So what I what I love is b- before even the credit comes on, is um, you hear bells ringing. Right. Right. And then you know Walt Disney Pictures presents, and then in black before color, you hear this Latin chant, and I I found the um, the translation. When you told me you found the translation, I was so excited. <laughs> uh, because that, that, one of the great things that I think what makes the score so effective is just like movie scores are subconscious to the majority of the audience and it makes you feel things, the use of the Latin mass and the Latin text in this movie gives it such, not just a religious, you know, reminding us that it's all taking place in a religious, you know, institution, but it just adds so much more... Um, mysteriousness to the to the overall feeling of the piece and kind of an ominous feeling as well right um and it's just it's it's very it's very subtle and it's very effective yeah completely and then for for those few in the audience who actually know what the latin means because these are for the majority you know mea culpa kyrie eleison these are uh if, if you're musically um familiar with either the latin mass or you know Masses, Mozart's Requiem, and other pieces. You know what these phrases mean. So the um, what you, we hear before the first, you know, big bell chime is called Olim, and this is how the the musical starts out as well. And it, I won't um, treat you to me speaking butchered Latin, but the translation is: Once long ago, God arrived in this age of brightness. He will come again. Wow. Yeah. That changes, that like totally impact on that. Yeah. And what's interesting is that there is, um, there have, you know, they're sort of like the Pixar theory. There are people who come up with all these theories and about the, you know, the deeper meaning of things. And there is, there's a, a faction that believe that Quasimodo is an allegory for God. I can see that. Because, I can see that, because, and, and we're going to talk about because uh, we're going to talk about Esmeralda and the uh, how she appears in this movie too, right? Um, because he watches the world from high, bestows blessings upon the downtrodden, and ultimately yeah. passes judgment on yeah on the wicked. Absolutely. Um, and, Absolutely. Yeah. And and rightful. Yes. Right. Unlike Frollo, he rightfully 
right. does it. Yes, exactly. So I think that that alone just says I th- I, it's gorgeous, and it's all in unison. It's just yeah, it's... probably twenty or so male voices. Yeah, um, and it's quiet, and you can't. It what also makes it intriguing is you can't really tell the diction isn't so crisp, which is which is okay because I think it gives a very ethereal quality. And I think it was purposeful. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, why don't we take a listen to that? That's amazing, and I, and I I actually like that you can't completely understand what's going on because it does give mm-hmm. that mysterious quality mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. If you hear the thumps going on, it's my it's my family trouncing around upstairs is what they're doing. <laughs> so if you hear the booming, that's what it is. It's really not. We're not trying to add atmosphere here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. That's not the purpose. Um, and then it goes into from there. It goes into Clopin, mm-hmm. basically setting up the story. Yeah. It's it, almost like the book. That they used at the beginning of old fairy tales, totally. right? And yeah. they're opening the book and telling you what's what's right. what's going to happen. And similar to, and I, I think it's done so well in Disney animated films, and people try to replicate it on stage. And I think it's also successful, but because film, I mean, you can accomplish visually more with film in a short amount of time than on stage. Then they do a great expositional number, and it sh- it shows yeah. you. I mean, it gives us the whole backstory and brings us, you know, this is what happened and here we are now. Right. And it also gives them, I think, the opportunity to start wherever in the story they want to. Yes. Because they can have, they can cut right to the middle of the story, which they actually do in this. Mm-hmm. Then, um, well, not in the middle, but much further from the beginning because they give you all that immediately. It uh, it reminds me of, um, it's sung, but it reminds me of the narrative at the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, and how the beast becomes the beast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, totally. Yeah, it's that it's that telling of the story, and I just love it. I just there's something about it. There's a playfulness to it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I almost feel like they made it a light feel. It's almost a jaunty feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if jaunty is the right word for sure. it, but it's kind of bouncy and mm-hmm. kind of you know. Yeah. It's not the it's not the darkness of what the story really is. Sure. Um, until we get to the dark. Right. Uh, and. W- what I what I also love about this opening is, so after the the Latin chant that you hear, you hear the what we'll call the bell motif or light motif. Right. And um, for for those listening who don't know what a light motif is, um, a light motif is a musical melody that is associated associated with a character or an idea. Um, made really popular with Wagner and operas because you'd have six-hour operas and you'd have to remember who's who, so you'd have different themes for characters. The the best modern reference is Star Wars, the score for Star Wars. You Absolutely. Vader's theme, Leia's theme, the Force theme. Um, and um, Mencken wasn't a huge motivic writer uh, in Beauty and the Beast and... Uh, and Little Mermaid and Aladdin. There are themes, but you don't necessarily get an, you know, Aladdin's theme or, you know, right. Belle's theme. You, um, but in this, from the beginning, you hear bum ba da, bum ba dum, bum ba da 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 da, and that's the Belle's theme. 
because it's also the theme for Hellfire later. Right. Which we'll get to. And there's obviously right. a relationship and the, done on purpose there. Um, but the theme, because it kind of, it goes up higher and then it goes back to a note in the middle. Bum, bottom, And then it happens again, but lower. Bum, bottom, And then it keeps jumping back and forth. These to me are the bells. Because when you ring bells, you don't ring them in like ascending or descending like a scale right you just kind of ring them right. at different times and it feels sounds like chimes right and in europe so in bells uh if, if you're thinking about like but we have handbells at church mm -hmm. uh in europe um they don't when they play bells they don't play songs no. they actually there's actually a pattern that they play which is what aaron is talking about about you know that it jumps around and then it shifts the pattern shifts and it shifts again and it shifts again um so it's not the melodic Right, that we think of right. in, in American bells. Right, we're not uh, playing melodies. Right, we're not playing melodies. Mm -hmm. um, and so I also think I, I think it's great because it kind of harkens to that tradition. Also, yeah. maybe right. I'm maybe I'm out in left field. Like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I could be out in the field. No, here. I think it. I think it. It's Why don't we call right. Alan? We'll just get him on let's, here. Yeah, let's let's call just Alan. call Alan. <laughs> we'll say, hey, were you thinking about? That'd be awesome. Great. So let's listen to a little bit of that. Of Notre Dame. Judge Claude Frollo longed to purge the world of vice and sin. And he saw corruption everywhere except within. Bring these gypsy vermin to the palace of justice. You there, what are you hiding? That opening is great and it, it really sets things up. We then. Uh, move to what my listeners know of as the I Want song. Totally, of, of course. the show. Um, and Mankin is always amazing at making the I Want song very clear. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no question. You don't ever question what the I Want song is in no. his shows. Um, and this, it's the song Out There. I, I, want, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, because Out There does not start happy. Mm. No. Out There starts ugly. Right. With uh, Frollo. The world is cruel. The world is wicked. Right, totally. Yeah. You know, just completely mm -hmm. beating Quasimodo down, right? Um, and beating him up, which I think makes the transition to his song even more dramatic, right? Totally. Yeah, it's especially if you listen. Sometimes on on recordings, they'll kind of chop the introductions and kind of start where the quote quote unquote where the song starts. Yeah. But they leave this intro in, and it it shows uh, Frollo's not just emotional but psychological. Manipulation of Quasimodo. Right. You know, the world is cruel. The world is wicked. That's why you can't go. I'm really protecting you. You know, I'm, right. I'm protecting you from the cruel world. So that's right. why you must stay in here. It's very passive aggressive. Oh, totally. Totally passive aggressive. And then Frollo leaves and we're left with Quasimodo uh, singing this wonderful song, which I absolutely love. Yeah. Out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's one of the most thrilling songs in the Disney catalog. It it really is. I mean the the build and the pacing of the song to reach that the the, the climactic moment of the end. It's it's really a great study in in the pacing of a song. You know, for yeah. for all you aspiring actors out there, you know, when you when you and you're in college and you analyze a song you think of like the beginning and the middle and the end and how you want to pace you can't just start loud from the beginning and stay loud through the end you know you have to pace the song and this is a great and and it shows that great composers will do the work for you right to actors it's all there you just need to sing it you don't That's... need to make up your own mishigas it's just it's all there <laughs> It's that's such a true statement, right? It's yeah. all in there. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like it's like Shakespeare. People that perform Shakespeare, like he gives you everything you need. Right. You don't have to. You don't have to work at all. Just do what he says, and you got it. Yeah. Because he's already written it in there. Yeah. And a shout out to the orchestrators of of Hunchback, which was um, Danny Trube, who has done all of Mencken's shows, as well as an, a first time collaborator with Mencken is Michael Starobin, who is. A, a very famed, well-known um, Broadway orchestrator. He did falsettos, um, most of William Finn's stuff, uh, the 92 revival of Guys and Dolls. But, the, I mean, if you listen to the violin and the horn parts alone in out there, it's just, it's sweeping. It's majestic yeah. and it's fast. It's really thrilling. Awesome. It's, yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah, and I just love the song. And I think visually it matches. Totally. I think visually he starts in his hovel, right? He starts in his little enclosed area. And then as it goes, it becomes more sweeping and we get more sweeping vistas of mm -hmm. Paris, right? And right. him looking out over Paris. Um, Sliding down the cathedral and... Yeah. Don't it, do that at home, kids. Yeah. <laughs> don't try this at home. You know, as a singer myself, uh, it's one of my favorite songs to sing. Mm -hmm. uh, for every reason that you just said. And plus, I think it's so easy to connect to. Yeah. Right? I think everybody feels outcast, totally. which is yeah. the... Um, which I think is the overarching theme of this show. And we, we haven't talked about the overarching theme of the movie, but I think it's a movie about outcasts and acceptance mm -hmm. and, um, you know, accepting who you are and who others are. Right. Uh, you know, I don't know that that was really their goal. I don't know if that was Hugo's goal or not. Right. But that's that's what I get out of it, yeah. personally. All four principles are outcasts, can be viewed as outcasts in their own ways. Completely, because obviously Quasimodo, Esmeralda's the gypsy, right. um, and... Uh, Phoebus, Phoebus denies Frollo. Right, right, and makes which makes him an outcast, right? When he won't right. burn down the windmill, he is he's cast out. Right, and, and Frollo, I'm sure, in his twisted mind, views himself as an outcast, too. Completely. Yeah. Complete, and you can see that. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're going to get to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally yeah. get to that. The world is cruel. The world is wicked. It's I alone whom you can trust in this whole city. I am your only friend. I who keep you, teach you, feed you, dress you. I who look upon you without fear. How can I protect you, boy, unless you always stay in here, away in here? Safe behind these windows and these parapets of stone, gazing at the people down below me. All my life I watch them as I hide up here alone. Hungry for the histories they show me. All my life I memorize their faces, knowing them as they will never know me. All my life I wonder how it feels to pass a day not above them. What part of them? I dare just to live 
So after out there, um, we come up with Topsy Turvy. Now I'm going to say something. I'm going to throw this in now. One thing I love about this recording, the CD recording of this, mm -hmm. or whatever recording, however you're listening to it, for those of you that don't know what CDs are, they're little plastic discs that you put in a machine and it actually plays music. Um, but one thing I love about it is that they didn't put all the songs in the front and then all the orchestra work in the back. Yes. They let the story tell itself through the music. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Because yeah. I hate it when they do that. Mm -hmm. It is one of my pet peeves. Um, and as much as I love Pixar, Pixar's horrible about it. They always put orchestra works at the end instead yeah. of letting the orchestra work filter through and tell the story right. the way that it should. Um, that doesn't really have anything to do with Topsy-Turvy. It just popped into my head because we're mm -hmm. going to go in, come into some of that stuff. Sure. Um, but Topsy-Turvy, um, sung by Clopin, and it introduces all the other characters. Right. Like, literally, it's mm -hmm. the introduction song, right? It's yep. like, it almost could have been, if he didn't have the uh, the Bells of Notre Dame where we're trying to set up the story, this could have been the first number mm -hmm. in, in the movie because we're talking, we're introducing right. all the characters mm -hmm. in this song. So, yeah. where does that tradition come from? Do you know anything about that? Or I, I threw that out there and didn't even warn you I was going to talk about that. <laughs> well, you know, there is always, you know, in, in certain shows you have songs where exposition needs to happen needs to happen or mm -hmm. characters need to be introduced um and whether it's through some sort of narrator figure like Clopin is in, right. in this um or it's just sort of you know breaking the fourth wall and everyone's introducing themselves which is not not always the most clever way you know of writing yeah <laughs> but um it's you know, it, it's a it's a musical theater convention i think of a show we did recently together drowsy chaperone where that first number is just you know it's hey here you go everyone's it's literally it's, introducing everyone yeah everyone introduces themselves right um and i think you see more of that in shows from the 20s and 30s before we really got more of an integrated book music was called an integrated book musical yeah like like oklahoma and on yeah um where it was more about telling the story um and there weren't so many you know song and dance numbers to the audience, like, kind of tongue-in-cheekly, like, hey, this is who I am, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's nice, because after we've had a pretty dark introduction to a movie, because in the, in the Bells of Notre Dame, you see, I don't I don't know if it's a murder, but you see, do you see, what? you see the... You see the parents die. Right, you see the parents die. You see the parents die, and you see that, that Frollo wants to kill the baby. Right. Says he's a monster, and right. he can't take him. He's a baby. Right. right. And, he's going to kill him. But it, it's, it's a very nice contrast, because it's a silly number, and you know it's the Feast of Fools, and everyone's having a good time. So it definitely needs that sort of juxtaposition of very dark to, okay, now we're having a good time. Right. Um, and it right. also is... Unique, and it also gives us, you know, we meet Clopin as the narrator, but it's also important to, for us to see that he is also a gypsy. Yes. Which we see in this number. Yes, we see in this number. Exactly. And it, it also it also gives us a taste of, um, we already know what Frollo thinks of the gypsies because of the beginning, mm -hmm. but it lets us know what Phoebus thinks of them also, because right. there are cuts in this song during the movie where he sees Esmeralda the first time, where right. he, you know, and sees how people are responding to the gypsies and is not thinks that it's wrong. Right. Right? Um, so they use that opportunity to make that all happen, too. One thing I love about this song is the style of this song, mm -hmm. the playfulness in this song, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so light. What also, what's tonally different about this song is you have the huge gothic sort of renaissance 
quality of the opening with the chant and then the, and the bells and the introduction. But here, because we're in Paris, it, you you are reminded that it's in Paris because the songs kind of feel like light French opera. Yes. Like you have composers like Jacques Offenbach who wrote Orpheus in the, in the Underworld. Most of you know that is the Can Can. That's which, what it is. Yeah, very. It's a can can number. Duck, duck, yeah, very light and uppity, and and that's what this number is. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and it's even got that big, um, when Clopin says, "Okay, now everybody," it's got that big slow down kick line, and it gets faster. And it builds to the end. I mean, it's, it's uh, again, we need a lot of juxtaposition from this gothic opening to now a kind of light and, and that's you know the. Um, that French opera, like the Can Can, it was written for low class, right? And this is so this kind of body, you know, into Boomchuck Broadway bouncy two thing is. I mean, this is low class because it's just it's the gypsies and the common. It's folk. the common folk. Once a year we turn all parties upside down. Every man's a king and every king's a clown. Once again, it's topsy-turvy day. It's the day the Devolinos get released. It's the day we mock the friggin' chocolate priest. Everything is topsy-turvy at the feast of food. Everything is upsy-daisy. Is acting crazy, throws his gold and weeds that are okay. That's the way I'm conceived every day. That goes right into uh, something on the CD that they call humiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when they grab and they humiliate Quasimodo, but it's also the humiliation of Frodo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Frollo, sorry. It's also the humiliation of Frodo. Different movie. <laughs> Different movie. <laughs> A smaller fellow. (laughs) Yes, furry feet. Um, (laughs) It's the humiliation of Frollo also because he feels humiliated with what's going on, right? Um, So, speaking of Frollo, isn't it interesting that his name is Claude Frollo, but we all everyone refers to him as Frollo. Totally, because Judge Frollo. Judge Frollo. I also find it interesting that in this movie they changed him from a priest. Right. To a judge. Yes. And I know they did that specifically because right. of the controversy of a priest doing what he was doing. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Crazy. That wouldn't have gotten the G rating. That would not have gotten the G rating. <laughs> no, especially when we get to a song later. Yes. We certainly would have lost it. Um, so uh, Humiliation, I think, is a great orchestral moment yeah. in this. I yeah. think um, it's not necessarily tuneful, but I think Mencken has created a, a really amazing piece with it. Mm-hmm. He does a great job in his scores of weaving the melodies for the songs that he's written into the score. Yes, so I, I always I say with Hunchback that I think it's his best score, not necessarily the best songs, although there are some wonderful songs, right. don't get me wrong, but I think it's the best score because it serves the story dramatically in the best way. And yes. with the melodies he's created, weaving those within the score when they... Um, when the score's happening and you see the, the action happening on stage and then you hear Esmeralda's theme because in this show there are more themes right. or you hear you know the bell theme I think it dramatically is very effective in this particular score yeah I agree and I think uh, you know one of the things that drives me nuts and, and my listeners know because um, we've talked about a few movies where they don't do that 
in the score. Right. And it drives me insane. I like, I want, and I think John Williams taught us this, mm-hmm. right? A John Williams taught us to thematically, to right. have those themes running through the whole thing, even if it's not, even if it's a spoken dialogue and it's just in the background. Right. Uh, he's kind of taught us that that's, right, in a movie sense. Right. That that's and, what we listen for. And as a as a quick side note, I listened to your Mulan episode. Yes. Um, which... Which is an example of them not doing it. Right, because the Hollywood legend Jerry Goldsmith wrote the score. Right. And I love the score. And You're right. And it's brilliant. Was, but those songs, you don't hear those songs, we Um Yeah, I'm so glad you listened to that, because I think even in that when I say, I, now that I've given this a second and third listen, I appreciate much more what he did than when I first saw it. Yeah. Like, that is a score that you have to really listen to mm-hmm. to appreciate the majesty and beauty of what he did. I mean, yeah. he did some amazing work in there. Of course, he's yeah. a legend. There's a reason he's a legend, right? Um, so, we get to the next song. Uh, we're flying through this movie, aren't we? Mm-hmm. We're flying. Uh, is God Help the Outcasts. Mm, yeah. My notes here say, I feel like it's the emotional center of the movie. Yeah. I feel like it is the it is the theme of the movie, right? Yeah. It is totally, and I love that he gives it to Esmeralda. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to talk, right now we're going to talk about two versions. Because if anybody else, is, anybody that's listened to this podcast knows, I usually hate credit songs. Hate them. Mm-hmm. Hate them, hate them. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I, and this is, and we're going to talk about this because Bette Midler does a recording and it's on the end of, this, of yes. the recording. Oh, um, Right. Love, and I love Bette. Queen Bette. Yes, Queen Bette. Uh, she can do no wrong in my my sense and it, I, it, the reason I think it doesn't work is not her fault right um, the reason I think this move this music works so well and make gives me chills almost brings me to tears every time I listen to it and I've listened to it hundreds of times mm-hmm. is not her song it's the juxtaposition of her singing this prayer for the outcasts and the people in the church the wealthy praying for money mm-hmm. and fame and, you know, all these material things. Yeah. And she is just simply asking to take care of her people. Right. And people that are less fortunate than her. I think one of the lines that drives, that just really drives it home is when she says, there are people less fortunate than me. She's pretty unfortunate. Yeah. She's begging on the streets. They're living, you know, day by day. Are we going to make it? Mm-hmm. And for her to say that, Compared to all these people saying they want all this wealth, yeah, and the 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 whole visually the whole scene is is like you say it's stunning, and yes. the lighting, the candles, and also that Phoebus is watching this, yes, seeing this, and he really I think that's what makes him fall in love with her. I think so too. Is seeing I think so how too. selfless she is. Yeah. Um. There's a again a beautiful. Um, Latin little chant that happens just before she starts singing. Yes, and it's when they're isn't that when they're coming down the aisle? Yes, of this? yes. Yeah. I was I'm so glad you brought that up because I was watching it today. I was re-watching it today. I was like, oh, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> the, again, the the use of the Latin mass in this in this movie is really um, effective. Well, the cathedral is a character. Yeah. Oh, completely. The cathedral is totally a character, which they use the gargoyles to kind of represent, right? Right. Um, and the gargoyles are the sidekick. Yuck, yuck. You, you need some comedy. You need in this some show. comedy in this show, <laughs> um, and they are definitely it. But yeah. uh, so, what are they? What are they saying when they're doing the procession down the aisle? What are they saying? So it says it means hail, holy queen, mother of mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. 
To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. Wow. What that does to this song, mm -hmm. just thinking about it, is amazing. Yeah. And that's really what Esmeralda's singing about. It's totally what es Esmeralda's singing about, right? Yeah. And it's totally there. The other thing is, is I feel like there, maybe the chant walking down the aisle is also about all the people that are asking for the wrong things. Mm -hmm. Right? Forgive them. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just think that that is brilliant about um, people in the background asking for these things and her yeah. not. And that's the reason the Bette Midler version doesn't work, in my opinion. Yeah. Because you don't care. Right. Right? You don't... Like, it's a beautiful song and she sings it well, um, but it's not the same as having that that additional music in there, those yeah. additional lyrics in yeah. there. That's what the impact is. Mm -hmm. I also think that, um, and we didn't talk about this, Esmeralda, I think, is an angelic figure in this. Mm -hmm. um, when she goes up onto the stand to save Quasimodo, yeah. uh, after he's been pelted with rotten fruit and vegetables and such, um, when we see her and he opens his eyes and we're looking at her through his eyes, mm -hmm. she's backlit with a beautiful sky, mm -hmm. this beautiful view, and it's definitely an aura radiating from her, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think it sets her up in this angelic peace. Right. Right? The savior, almost. Right. If if we go back earlier and if we think that Quasi is the, the allegory for God, she is definitely the allegory for the angels. Totally. Totally. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to get that in there. Well, totally. let's listen to a little bit of uh, God Help the Outcasts, because, um, like I said, I love this piece. I think it's the heart and soul of this movie. I don't know if you can hear me Or if you're even there I don't know if you would listen To a gypsy's prayer Yes, I know I'm just an outcast I shouldn't speak to you Still I see your face and wonder Were you once an outcast too? God help the outcasts Hungry from birth Show them the mercy They don't find on earth God help my people We look to you still God help the outcasts Where nobody Then uh, spend a lot of time in the bell tower uh, and music of the bell tower. Uh, Quasimodo is introducing her to the bells. 
uh, Esmeralda. Um, I love this piece. It really develops the relationship between Esmeralda and um, Quasimodo. Uh, and and they use that bell tower motif all through it. Mm-hmm. It's it is. Um, it's very clear that they are using the bells as a character yeah. in this. It's, it becomes very evident, especially since Quasimodo has named all of them, right. that the bells are very important in this story totally. because those were his friends. Um, so we then get to a song called Heaven's Light, mm. um, uh, sung by Quasimodo, um, which is Quasi has fallen in love. Yeah. I mean, he really has. Yeah. He's really yeah. fallen in love with this woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and rightfully so. I mean, who doesn't fall in love with Esmeralda in right. this? I mean, you know, she's sexy and she's she's got an amazing heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, who wouldn't fall in love with that, right? right. You know? The first person he's had contact with right. ever, other than right. Frollo. Frollo and probably the Archdeacon, right? right? Yeah, right. Probably the Archdeacon. Um, so... Yeah, so do you have anything else that you want to add in there I, about Heaven's Light? We're not talking about the Hellfire part of it yet. Right. Let's just talk about Heaven's Light. Because I, even though they're one on the recording, they are definitely two separate songs. Right. Well, yeah, definitely. Because what I like about them is that juxtaposition of Heaven's Light, Hellfire. Right. Um, Which is throughout the whole movie. To, uh, yeah. The whole movie. Light and dark. Constantly. And, and that, that's a that's a mythical... I mean, Star Wars is about light and dark, too. Right. Um, what's... What always gets me is the the lyric, I never, I knew I'd never know that warm and loving glow, though I might wish with all my might, no face as hideous as my face was ever meant for heaven's light. I mean, because you really see just how, how much damage Frollo has done, just teaching him from an infant that no one will ever love you, you're ugly, yeah. I'm the only one, I'm and I'm a good person because I'm the only one who will ever, you know... Yeah, love you essentially. Yeah, I'm about. I'm going to show my age here. Is what I'm going to do. Mm. Um, when this came out, I was actually working at the Disney store, um, and actually it was it was actually pre this movie. They were it was in production. We all knew it was coming, um, and they actually had to make Quasimodo look nicer. Did you know that? No. They actually had a very more severe Quasimodo. Interesting. And when they showed it to people, it scared them. Sure. And so they were like, "This is not a lovable character. We have to make him right. We have to make him lovable, right? Because uh, he was actually pretty, no pretty grotesque. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> except, except I would buy one because I love sure. the Disney villains. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's one of the best. Oh, he is one of the best. Disney one villains. of the best. I, uh, you know, there's always the argument of who do you like, but he's one of my favorites. because yeah. he's so evil. He's just yeah. And the again, you hear like you mentioned before. At the very end, as it must be heaven's light, you hear the bum ba da bum ba da. You hear the bells of Notre Dame again, but in a right. much lighter timbre, in yes. sort of the smaller, the high treble bells. Yeah, it's not as nearly as gothic as the opening, but it's again, it's that constant theme throughout the the score. Yeah, let's listen to a little bit of that. Yes, love this song. I knew I'd never know that warm and loving glow, though I might wish with all my. No face as hideous as my face Was ever meant for heaven's light But suddenly an angel has smiled at me And kissed my cheek without a trace of fright I dared to dream that she might even care for me 
And as I ring these bells tonight, my cold dark tower seems so bright. I swear it must be heaven's love. All right. Um, so after uh, that beautiful song. We go to the depths of hell, literally. I mean, Disney has taken us down there. Um, and Frollo um, sings uh, a song called Hellfire. Um, and it's about his lust mm-hmm. for Esmeralda and his loathing of himself because of his lust for Esmeralda. Yes. Like, it really shows a complex character. Yeah. He is, And what I find interesting is as evil as he is, and, and I've said it, you know, he's one of my favorite villains. He's really complex. Like Hades from Hercules, not so much. Not so much. Not so much. Um, Ursula, not so much, mm. right? She just wants power and will do anything to get it. But right. he's, re- you really see him struggling mm-hmm. in this song. And, and I think that adds so much more. And, um, you know, I think that uh, Tony Jay does such an amazing job in this performance. It's, it's one of the best performances on the CD, in my opinion, in the movie. Completely. Vocal performances, because it's so, there's so much to it. Yeah. You know? It's really one of the great bass songs that exist. Yeah. In the bass repertoire. And there's not a lot. No, there are not. You know, and everyone, we're not writing more bass roles, they're all tenors now. But Thank God. Yeah. (laughs) But it's really one of the great bass songs, and, and like you say, it's, he's, it's a very complex character, because he not just because because he wants to you know he he has a lust for esmeralda but he also wants to kill her but he also feels bad and is confessing that he feels those feelings right from an some inborn like it's not you know it's not like your typical villains where i want power and i had a bad upbringing he he just he is so um staunch in his beliefs that and from whatever his beliefs came from, that he is unwilling to make any concessions, even to himself. Even to himself. Yeah, I think, and it sets up the ending of this movie so well. I think, um, and you and you buy him losing his mind more so. Yeah. I think because of this, because there's constantly that struggle going on with him. Of I love her, but I have to kill her. But you know, I lust after her, and uh, right, you know, all that. I also think um, the visuals of uh, this match so beautifully Mm -hmm. to the depth of this song, right? It's very dark, and the fire, singing it in front of the fire, not only for the representation of Hell's Fire, but I think the the lighting that that offers to them and the shadows that offers to them is brilliant. Right. Um, And seeing Esmeralda in the fire. In the fire, yeah. You know, dancing in the fire. What's great about this is this is another very common musical theater trope is that you have partner songs. You know, Meredith Wilson and the Music Man, you had um, The Sadder But Wiser Girl, which is a partner song to My White Knight. Right. 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 And you have Hellfire and Heaven's Light, which are partner songs. And right. even it goes right into the, it starts with Heaven's Light, goes right into Hellfire. Right. Um, so I think so many contrasts yeah that, you know orally visually so aaron have you listened wise? to that and and now that we're talking about this i didn't i didn't think to listen that closely to it um mm-hmm. more than i usually do is there a thematic element that weaves between them weaves through them 
Well, there is. It's the bell theme again. Right. Because like fire, hellfire, this right. burning in my skin. Except right. it's as opposed to um, the bell theme, which ba da 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 ends up. His goes, right. his goes down. down. Da, 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 da. Yeah. 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 So there is a connection thematically. Co- completely. There it, is a musically. connection. And you just, you know, I, I, now I have not read the book. I, I think I read when I was younger a, like a, a young adult's version of the book mm-hmm. that took out a lot of the French, I'd, you know. Yeah. Um, but so this is, this, in, in the book, this is The Rape of Esmeralda. Oh, and so there was a big uprising because of the sexual graphic nature of this particular visual scene, and it film. is sexual. Oh like, yeah, it is. Yeah, the fire. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. yeah, there's some stuff going on, and he's got that scarf, and he's you know he's rubbing himself with that scarf. Yeah, he is like all about that scarf. Yeah. Uh, wow, I didn't realize that that was the rape of Esmeralda in the book. That just adds a whole new. Yeah level of understanding right thank and, you for that yeah and it's from from an artistic standpoint it's a it's a it's a very effective way of dealing with like how are you going to have that same gr- the gravity of that situation in a children's animated film yeah right so it yeah. was it's a great like cinematically it's a great moment of of depicting something truly abhorrent oh horrendous right um, and then again, it brings us right back to how the hell did they get a G rating for this movie? I mean, really? I mean, when you think Lilo and Stitch got a PG? Yeah. It makes no sense. Yeah. How did they get a G rating on this movie? It's it's crazy. They must have fought for that. Yeah. Um, you hear, if, if if you don't mind, you again, oh, you please. hear some Latin at the beginning. You do. And um, the, the, the chorus is singing, I confess to God Almighty, to the Blessed Mary Ever Virgin, to the Blessed Archangel Michael, to the holy apostles, to all the saints. Because this is his confession. Yeah. You know, I there's part of me that wishes I had understood that when I watched it. And yeah. now when I go back and listen to it again, it will totally change. It'll, it'll just add... It doesn't change it. It just adds more. Right? It's just another layer of understanding. Right. You, 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 learn, you learn more about it. It also makes me appreciate what they did more. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It makes my appreciation for this score and this movie more. Right, and you between there's there's a section sort of the bridge in the song. You get to it's not my fault if in God's plan He made the devil so much stronger than a man. You have the chorus shouting mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, which is my fault, my, my fault. fault. It's completely my fault. Yeah, yeah. So you have that internal struggle that he's having, having these lustful feelings, but sinning. So it's it's really all in his mind. Yeah, and you know that brings me that brings me back to uh Sweeney Todd in Sweeney, in the musical Sweeney Todd when the judge is doing his mea culpa. Yeah. Same idea, right? Total. I should not be having these feelings about my ward, mm-hmm. Joanna, yep. and I do. Yep. And it's my mea culpa, mea culpa. Right, my, my fault. fault. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, let's listen to a little bit of that because I want to listen to it now. Oh, yeah. Now that you now said that, now we have to listen to it. Why I see her dancing there Why her smoldering eyes still scorch my soul I feel her, I see her The sun caught in her raven hair Is blazing in me out of all control Like fire 
make a huge difference it does yeah like it makes it just adds another layer of sophistication yeah to this and 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 when you when you understand that it's it's a whole different weight completely that it tolls on you completely and and i keep you know when we talk about the latin i always think of you know um you know pieces that they that people use for dramatic effect that are so Mm -hmm. used repeatedly in movies, right? Right. Um, but uh, the fact that this is set really in a Catholic church, mm -hmm. right, in a very Catholic Paris, yes. France. 1482 or whatever. Right. Um, just adds a whole new dimension to it. So, so amazing. So amazing. So we go from Hellfire yes. to a song that really, in my opinion, could be cut from the movie. <laughs> yes. Yes. It totally could I, I, it's not that I don't like this song. I love this song because I love the comedic song. I'm a sidekick. That's my natural mm -hmm. go-to um, as an actor. And so um, I love it for that. But it, it's a guy like you, and it's sung by Victor and Hugo and Laverne. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're trying to cheer. Um, yeah. I mean, literally, Frodo has set Paris on fire. Like, we see Paris burning. Right. They're looking down on burning. There's even a joke um, that Paris the, is burning right yeah. in the movie yeah. and he's roasting hot dogs on it. I mean, you know, so they've really, uh, you know, they obviously wanted to get that Paris, but they wanted to give you the idea of Paris burning it, but, but somebody obviously said, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> right. This is, we got to lighten this up. Right. Oh yeah. It's that, it's the age old, you got to suffer for your art. If we're going to make this great film, you got to, you got to Disneyfy it and Completely. make it, you know, commercial and make the, the merchandise is going to be the gargoyles. The merchandise is going to be the gargoyles. It is. And you know, and I still have my McDonald's Happy Meal toys of all the Hunchback characters. Oh, I'm so jealous. I'm sure I have them somewhere <laughs> in that stack behind us. I'm sure I have them somewhere. Um, mainly I just keep Goofy out now for yeah. my Disney stuff. Um... <laughs> I, I almost feel like it was an afterthought. Yeah, I think, you know, I think uh, Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise, you know, they had, if, if you look at the other things they directed, I mean, they hit it really out of the park with Beauty and the Beast. Uh, First animated film to be nominated for Best Picture. And my, yeah. Yeah. My argument is that it should have won. But... Versus be, Silence of the Lambs, right? Right. Yeah. Silence of the Lambs was brilliant, but what they did with Beauty and the Beast was revolutionary. Yes. It was revolutionary. And in my opinion, that's what best, that's what it should be about, sure. right? Um, go ahead. We could then have a discussion about La La Land and... Oh, and, I have and many Moonlight. thoughts on La La Land. Yeah, maybe we'll have a separate <laughs> podcast about that. Um, <laughs> but so then they did, they did a Hunchback. So they probably, I think Disney and... Keep in mind, during all of this, there was a lot of kerfuffle happening because Jeffrey Katzenberg yes. um, didn't get promoted, so he left and started DreamWorks around this time. He le he left in the middle of this, didn't yes. he? In the middle of the making of, and it, he was the one that pushed that told everybody to stop what you're doing and go to this movie. Right, and Frank Wells, who is the number two at Disney, died in a in a fortunate helicopter crash. In my opinion, was really the creative force at that time. Michael yeah. Eisner was not the creative no. force. He's a numbers man. Right, um, and 
so you have, Frank Wells really did that. Right. So you have a lot of, I mean, at one point, you know, as, as a conductor, especially, you know, you always have, you're always reporting to the board, you know, so I'll, I'll, and there's always, whenever you're an artist, you're always, you know, kind of answering to usually the governing body that gives you the money. Right. You know, right. So it feels like maybe it's a business. It is. It is a business. We have to remember it's a business as, it a, as an actor. Sometimes I have to remind myself it's show business. Yeah. It's about putting butts in seats. Right. Every time I'm like, they're like, no, you can't have 45 people in the orchestra. It's a business. I understand. It's, it's, it's a, a business. business. Right. We should have four. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I think that they, you know, they, they really wanted to tackle heavier subject matter. They had the cachet because they just done this film and, you know, and as we alluded to earlier, they did have to cut some things to make it, to get that G rating. Um, and I, th I think they thought, I mean, it's probably the reason why when we talk about the musical, why the musical cuts the gargoyles. Completely. Completely gone. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's, it's a much more adult thing because it, you won't get those kids. That's right. And it's not as, and, and on a, a very surface level, it's not as pretty as Beauty and the Beast is. That's right. You know. That's no, no, it is not at all, right? No. It is not at all. Right. Um, you get a lot of colors in Notre Dame. You're in the bell tower, and it's gray. That's exactly right. Well, and where even you know a lot of colors and such. I mean, you know, Clopin and the Gypsies are colorful and such. But we see the dark side of that too in this movie, which we'll talk about a little in a little bit. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So you know, a guy like you, it is a typical sidekick song. Very French. Accordion. Very accordion. It's it makes me laugh every time I listen to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is funny. Yeah. It's a funny song. And Jason Alexander, let us not forget, is a Broadway actor. Completely. Won and, a Tony for Jerome Robbins Broadway. And and is brilliant. Yeah. I love I love him. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I th I think he's great. Uh. And, uh, you know, Charles Kimbrough and Mary Wicks aren't slouches. No. They no. are not slouches. No. And, really uh, great voice casting with those. Really great voice casting. And the, the differences, they really were going for three very distinct different sounds, right? Yes. Because they wanted the gargoyles to be so distinct in personality. Because I think it would have been really easy to make them just three gargoyles. Right. Just, you know, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, right? Yeah, the rule of, and the hyenas and Lion King. Right. They, exactly. Exactly. It would have been really easy. So, you know, I don't know that there's much to say about a guy like you, really. I, I think yeah, it's, it's a fun tune, yeah. um, but really it's the one tune that I think is the least important. It does not move the story forward. No. It is one of it's the... It's the comedic break. It's the comedic break, and it's one of the up-tempo songs. Right. Because there aren't a lot. No, it's Topsy Turvy in this. Yeah, Topsy Turvy you know, in this. the drum set, you know. <laughs> It's, it's, it's a nice little Parisian jaunt. It is. It, it's, I didn't even think about that. The fact that there's not a lot of pop, happy, no. up-tempo things, no. right? No, this is the... No, it's pretty dark. Yeah. A guy like you She's never known kid A guy like you A girl does not meet every day You've got a look That's all your own, kid Could there be two? Like you, no way. Those other guys that she could dangle all look the same from every boring point of view. You're a surprise from every angle. Muncha above, she's gotta love a guy like you. A guy like you gets extra credit. Because it's true, you've got a certain something more. Racist, you see that face? You don't forget it. Want something new? That 
It's you. We then have Paris is Burning mm-hmm. on the CD, on the recording. Um, actually, I think the music actually goes earlier because I believe that this is the music that is behind Frollo going through all of Paris looking for Esmeralda, right? Right. So they have taken some liberties in order here. Right. Uh, which they sometimes do, and I understand because um, sometimes it makes more sense yeah. uh, to do that from a from a pacing of the CD, mm-hmm. right? Because right. we forget that Disney, you know, whereas... And, and any artist, not just Disney, the order is very important, right? right? In, in a CD because you're not seeing it. Right. So um, in Paris is Burning, we get a lot of that bell tower a lot of the bell tower theme, a lot of the same similar Latin chants. Yes. Kyrie eleison, dies irae, dies A lot of that. A lot of that. Yeah. Um, and it ends with uh, Phoebus getting shot at and we think has died. And then Esmeralda goes and saves him. Right. Um, happy stuff. Really, really an upper. Really an upper. <laughs> really good happy stuff. Uh, we then go to the Court of Miracles. Yes. So uh, in the story, uh, Phoebus and Quasi are like... You know, they're coming after you. They have to warn the Court of Miracles. They have to warn the gypsies that he's coming after them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they end up at the Court of Miracles, but it doesn't quite go the way they think it's going to go. Right. And we see the ugly side of Clopin yes. in this. We almost see the manic mm-hmm. side of Clopin. He becomes very manic. Right. Because they capture they capture them. And then he takes topsy-turvy and turns it on its ear, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, the, the Court of Miracles is... It's 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 very kind of a heffalumps and woozles feeling. It's, oh, I never even thought of it's that. It's kind of demonic. Yeah, you've got them sort of in the in the costumes of the, with the bones. Yes. Um, because they, I mean, because Quasi and Phoebus have gone there to warn Esmeralda, but they don't believe them. Right. They're you know. Um, I always wanted. I just wanted them. I wanted Quasi in that scene, and I, every time I watch it, I want it, and I know how it works. Right. But it's not going to change. Right. Right. <laughs> I always wanted to bring the necklace out and go look, look, right. look. Right. It, again, you know, gypsy music. Um, now there, there's gypsy, and and I I believe it's more of kind of a derogatory term now. I think. I think it is. Yeah. But you know, in this, I mean, throughout time, you've had Eastern European gypsies and Parisian gypsies, and so there's all this. Each kind of culture of gypsies have different styles of music. Right. You know, so there's this piece called Zagunerweisen for violin and, and orchestra, and it's called Gypsy Airs, so it's very virtuosic. Here, though, in the Parisian kind of gypsy music, it's got this very um, dance quality, because it's in 680, it's got this rhythm, and there's tambourine, and it's kind of, um, it's like a dark little demonic devil dance. Yeah. There's a, yeah. my alliteration for the day. <laughs> you only get one. <laughs> Uh, exactly. And I think, um, one thing I love about this is, um, well, you know, when Jolly sees that they're about to be hung and is going to go get Esmeralda, you know, they're going to be saved. Mm. One thing I love about visually about what happens at a, with this song, um, is the way that Clopin, we see how quickly he goes from character to character. I mean, he plays Frollo and he plays himself and he plays the puppet, the puppet. And, and the speed of that, the manicness of that, really, I think, heightens the intensity mm-hmm. of the scene. It's creepy. This is where kids would not like Clopin. That's right. He's the guy from the beginning. Oh. Right, right. And I think they, I think, and I almost think that the reason they threw the puppet in is because of that. Right. Because they have made him really a bad guy at this moment. 
Right. Right. He he doesn't end up being a bad guy, but no. but he comes about as close as you can come. He's moving that that lever. Oh yeah, yeah. He's pulling that lever. Yeah, yeah. He's so um, and then every, you know, and then obviously, uh, Esmeralda comes in and says, "No, these guys are our friends." Fifteen the court of miracles, I am the lawyers and judge all in one. We like to get the trial over with quickly because it's the sentence that's really the fun. Any last words? <laughs> that's what they all say. Now that we've seen all the evidence... Wait, I object! Overall! I object! Quiet! We find you totally innocent, which is the worst crime of all. We then have the Battle of Paris. Mm -hmm. It's called Sanctuary. Yes. Uh, but it's really the battle. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's the fire and things are burning and it ends with, um, you know, we're, we're about to kill Esmeralda basically is what it is. And mm -hmm. then we are, uh, Quasimodo's off to save her. Right. Phoebus is there to help, gets out of, uh, you know, jail, and is there to help. Um, and it ends with um, this piece of it uh, ends with um, the fire raining down from Notre Dame. Right. Now, I don't think most people know that, um, and I'm going to throw this in, and you can talk about the music of this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about the visuals. I don't think people understand that at the time that Notre Dame was created, um, they would have boiling oil at the top mm -hmm. of the cathedrals and of castles and such. And if they would be attacked, they would literally pour it down right. yes. to stop the attack, mm -hmm. right? And so that's what we're getting here, right? right. It's not just a fly-by-night happenstance right. that this happens. It looks like, like lava, yeah. It looks like lava. And that is literally what they would have done uh, in at that time. They would have gone up and lit those fires if they knew the attack was coming mm -hmm. or whatever to make that boiling oil to pour over right right and it's yeah. a it's a striking visual it, the, the visuals in this are, are really something and you can see well first let the the windmill which happens before this yes looks looks shockingly like that the the old mill the old mill from that you know that silly symphonies i would guess i don't think it's just shockingly does no, i'm it sure is i think mill. it is the old mill <laughs> you know they use reuse stuff all the time i'm, so. I'm, I'm glad you know that reference <laughs> um the, the you and you see some early um computer-generated images. Yes. C early CGI. Yeah. Which now looks... You can tell it's it's dated. But right. then it was... You know, I remember... I mean, I was seven when it came out, but I remember thinking, wow. Yeah, and really, um, I was reading uh, that they used, you know, the crowd, the big crowds, especially for, like, this battle and for mm -hmm. thing. They had... Um, they used all that... They did that... Uh, they had six different character types. Right. Uh, three men, three women. Thin... Medium and fat. Mm -hmm. That was it. Yep. Uh, and then they had 72 actions that they could do. Right. Right? And mm -hmm. so they just kind of let it randomly choose whatever those actions yes. were. Yes. Uh, the computer. But I have to tell you, compared to the computer-like animated films that we think of today... Right. They really did a good job of making the people... Yeah. ...look hand-drawn. Yes. Now, even more crowd so... Scenes. Yeah, the crowd scenes. Even more so than Mulan, where I felt like they really... It was obvious they were not... Right. And drawn, right? They didn't have faces. They didn't have, you know, it was just obvious. But I felt like they really did a nice job of making yeah. these characters look hand-drawn, even though they were computer-generated. Right. Um, and, and blending the computer generation with 
the traditional animation at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, like at the end of Topsy Turvy when the when the confetti blows. That's computer, but right. it really looks nice. Yes. Like they really integrated it nicely. Unlike Aladdin, when he's right. flying out of the Cave of Wonders, where you're like, oh, that is definitely computer generated, yeah, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. It just shows how far they came mm-hmm. yeah. um, at that time and had to, right. because at this point, uh, Toy Story had come out, right. and we were all enamored right. by well, it. And, and when you think of, uh, they were the ones responsible for that, that famous camera swoop in Beauty and the Beast. Right, which is computer generated. Right, which yeah. was the first time that they really, you yeah. know, a couple things in The Great Mouse done. Detective, but yeah. Yeah, beautifully done. Yeah. Beautifully done. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so I'm sorry. So, uh, Sanctuary, we've got this this Hellfire, the Bells motif going throughout. And you're you're going to pull, I see you pulling up some Latin here. Yes. Because there's lots of Latin in this. Yes. So when we hear, there's a large sequence where we just hear them singing in Latin. Yes. And they're saying, our judge we believe shall come in you, Lord. Have I trusted? Let me not be damned for eternity. Save your people in our judge we believe. Wow, they're singing about Quasimodo, aren't they? Yeah. Like, they are totally singing about Quasimodo at that moment. Yeah. They're asking Quasimodo to come. The Greek chorus, or the unseen chorus right. of this, mm-hmm. is calling for Quasimodo to, to save yeah. the day. And I'm paraphrasing this from um, Genius.com, which uh, analyzes lyrics. Um, and they've done a great job with, the, with this translation. But it says, from the viewpoint of Frollo who is often referred to as the judge, right. the chorus shows his dis- his belief that God has made him an instrument to destroy the wicked. Therefore, his fanaticism is represented by in you, Lord, I have trusted. His fear of hell with let me not be damned for eternity and his belief that his good with Savior people. From the point of the view of protagonists, the words represent their own prayers to God, not just one of God's tools. The complexity. Yeah. Right? The depth of... Yeah. The depth of thought. Yeah. To, to create it. It really makes you, it makes you as a, as, and I hope that everybody that's listening to this gets this. It makes it, it makes you appreciate the craft yeah, so much more. And I don't use, I mean, yes, it's an art, but it's a craft. It like, really is. They really crafted brilliance with mm-hmm. this. Um, that I find it interesting that they separated, um, and he shall smite the wicked from yes. this. And now it is a different scene because... Mm-hmm. Uh, Frollo has gone up to kill Quasimodo and he sees Esmeralda there and then, you know, I mean, there's a whole, the whole Esmeralda's alive because we think she's died and then the battle with Quasimodo. Right. Um, and the last thing that we see is uh, Frollo about to smite, he uses the, those words, mm-hmm. to smite uh, Esmeralda and in turn Quasimodo because she's holding on to Quasimodo. Right. Right. Um, but... His words are, um, and he shall uh, smite the wicked. Mm-hmm. And then, and he looks demonic. Yeah. Like, it is one of the scariest renderings of a character I've ever seen Disney do. Yeah. And and quoting the liturgy. Yes. Yeah, he totally does. It is, and it is, even today when I was watching it, I was like, that is terrifying. It really is. Yeah. That image of him standing on that parapet, mm-hmm. uh, that... The eyes. The eyes... I mean, and the fire behind him, his hair is kind of coming up in like horns and like they really went over the top. Uh, they've paled him completely out. He was always pale, but they've really gone extreme, almost made him gray yeah. in that scene. And the fire behind him, that that golden glow of fire behind him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he says those lines mm-hmm. and he falls to his death. 
Yeah. Into the fire. Into the fire. Into the fire. Which he started. Which he started and which he said he was going to send the others to. Right. Because in his mind, he's sending the wicked away. But right. to us as the viewers and um, he's the wicked. Right. It, and it's he is such a it's such a timely character for right now. Totally. Because you have a person who thinks he is doing God's work. He thinks he's do, his way. He is making the world a better place. Right. Right. And isn't that the most scariest villain of all? Totally. Uh, so Frollo dies in a terrifying fall. Uh, and into the fire. Not unsimilar to Gaston's fall. I would say very similar to Gaston's yes. fall. <laughs> I I would say that's you know uh, well when you have the same directors that's right you you're, know you're on a castle you're, and then you yeah, fall and then you fall. That's what one's you do. rain one's fire. That's exactly right. What what's the difference? You know, <laughs> um, it is that is very true. Uh, and then Esmeralda drops Quasimodo and Phoebus catches him. Um, it's very heroic. It is. It is very heroic. We've had this horrible moment, scary moment, and then they immediately take us to what we think is going to be scary, like we can't, you know, Quasi can't die, mm-hmm. and then Phoebus reaches out and catches him, which I think was perfect. Yeah. I, I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. Because um, you look at Quasi, uh, when she's holding on to him, and he just, and his eyes are closed, and he just he's looks. He's done. He's, it's like in Toy Story 3. When they just, they know it's the end. Oh my God. One of the saddest things I've ever seen. Oh my God. <laughs> I was bawling. I was, I was not prepared for that <laughs> I when was I saw not, it. I was not either. That's a whole nother, another podcast again. Um, yeah. And, and you, I think during that whole battle and especially when Esmeralda has him and he realizes that she can't hold his weight because he's a beefy guy. Mm-hmm. Like he's got some bulk to him. Both at hunch. Yeah, exactly. Um, you almost see the resignation. Mm-hmm. That this is the end. Right. Right. You almost see that this is, it's over. So when Phoebus catches him, it's really, really wonderful. Um, Let's, I want to talk about, this gives us a great opportunity to talk about um, point of view Mm -hmm. in this movie. Yeah. Um, Because I've thought a lot about point of view of this movie. I have, I have, I'm always interested in who's telling the story. Mm-hmm. Whose eyes are we seeing this through? In a lot yeah. of Disney movies, we see it through God's eyes, right? Mm-hmm. We see it through a completely outside view. I don't believe that's the case in this movie. No. And um, I think my opinion is that we're seeing this through Clopin's eyes. Mm-hmm. He's the one telling the story at the right. beginning, and I think he continues to tell the story, right? And it's through his eyes. Right. Um. And his interpretation. Right. I think that's part of the reason Esmeralda is angelic. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he would view her. Right. That way. Right? What's what's always struck me... I mean, do you, what do you think about that? I well, mean, no, I, I, I agree with you. As you said that, I was thinking, at the beginning when he's introducing, he sets us up who is the monster, what makes a monster, and what makes a man. Right. 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 Um, but... It seems like he already knows what's happening. It seems like he's telling the story, but he's not. Completely. But he's not. He is like. But it would seem, based on your hypothesis, that we are seeing it happen through Clopin's eyes. Right. And at the end, you know. So here is the riddle to guess if you can. So what makes the monster? What makes a man? Right. I, I really think that that's uh, 
And I thought a lot about it because I was like, is it through Quasimodo's eyes? And I don't think it's through Quasimodo's eyes. Mm-hmm. Don't think we see it. And don't think we see it through Fro- Frollo's eyes either. Right? It might be through the bell's eyes. It might be through the bell's eyes because they are definitely a character as we've talked about earlier. Yeah. I, that's interesting. If you guys have any thoughts about that, please let me know. Um, yeah. Head out to the website, uh, the Facebook page, and let us know what you think because I'm sure we would be interested in, in hearing what everybody has to think about that. Yeah. Or Notre Dame is often referred to as her. It is. And today they still call right. her her. So it might be through her eyes. Yes. That's true. That's very true. Um, yeah. But, but I agree with you that I, I definitely think, I mean, he is the narrator from the beginning. Right. And, and he definitely lets you, I definitely feel like he knows what's going to happen. He knows the story. Right. Um, I feel like, just my opinion, is that I feel like he knows the story before he, before we see the story. Right. Right. He's kind of that omniscient narrator narrator right. yes uh and knows what's going to happen so uh we get the we get we get the lovely um we're at the end of the movie and of course everything is all well and good and uh i love the moment at the end and we get the uh the tune the bells of notre dame is kind of in the background of everything that's going on um but it's very light and uh quasi comes out from the darkness to the light, which I think is a really powerful mm-hmm. image. Yes. Really powerful image. And the other image that I love, um, Oz, obviously Esmeralda and Phoebus are going to hook up. Right. Um, obviously. Uh, go ahead. It's interesting. So the moment when we, when we see that quasi realizes that she doesn't feel about him the way he feels about her. It's interesting because that it's right before heaven's light. And it, it's, it prepares you, and his first couple of verses makes you think it's going to be a sad song about, yeah, you know, da 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 that she would care for me, you know, right. It makes you think that the song is going to be about, woe is me, she doesn't love me anymore, right. But because he's such a, he's such a unique character, he just, he kind of moves past that, and then it becomes about, you know, something greater than that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that's I think that's the beauty of him. Yeah. I I love this character. I absolutely love this character. Um, and uh, so and at the end, I love at the end that they use a child mm-hmm. to go up and touch yeah. Quasimodo. I think that is such a beautiful statement. Right. Through a child's eyes. Yes. Right. Because if you look at children, none of that matters to them. Right. And so to have it be a child. Right. to come up, I think is just the fitting right. end. The recording ends with two songs. Um, I hate credit songs because they never match what happened in the movie, I don't feel like. But this one does. Someday. Mm-hmm. And it was actually supposed to be in the movie. Yes. It was actually in the... It was supposed to be a song in the movie um, and they cut it. Yep. Um, and so then they gave it to um, All for One. They actually There were actually four, three different versions of this song. Um, All for One did it. A... Uh, UK pop gospel group did it. Mm-hmm. And then there's a Spanish version, which actually was a hit. Right. The Spanish version actually was mm-hmm. popular. Um, it is the one, I hate credit songs. Because right. they're always po- some pop singer singing some right. stupid either updated version or I, right. I hate it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this one really ties a nice bow yeah. on this. What what I, It's interesting. So someday as, and as we move to talk about the musical it's in the stage adaptation correct but it's the same melody as olim as the the, the opening chant da 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 yeah da, 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 da. and that's why it works yeah 
That's why it works. And so melodically, it is connected to the opening, to the first thing you hear in the audience. Yeah. As the last thing you hear leaving. Yeah. Someday, when we are wiser, when the world's older, when we have Someday we may yet leave to live and live. And then there's all, then there's the last song. The very last song is Bette Midler's uh, "God Bless the Outcast," which we've already said mm. doesn't work because it's it's out of context right you really need the the juxtaposition of the visuals like you said the visuals and of the of the chorus singing those mm -hmm. things to make you realize the yeah. altruistic nature of what she's doing yeah because it really is altruistic yeah um and i love Bette, and she sings the snot out of it but it just doesn't work mm -hmm. i just think it just doesn't work yeah. um which is really too bad yeah right i almost wonder if she was like i want to sing that song and so then they were like okay you know, that was the song that, you know, they were going to win the Oscar. That's what they would have said. That's right. You know? Yeah. I have, I, I ha there's a very, for, purely for nostalgic reasons, and because, I mean, these movies were my childhood. Yeah. I have a place in my heart for the credit songs. Like the Celine Dion, Peebo Bryson. Oh, God. I, there's something, <laughs> I, I listen to it, and I just, I go back to, I mean, Beauty and the Beast was the first movie I saw in film, er, in the theater. Oh, really? Yeah. I was three first thing I saw and I remember I remember being terrified at the during the opening you know with the beast and he slashes the, the his portrait yeah. um I do I do I love that um I love the uh the Peebo Bryson a uh, whole new world <laughs> I do I love it I love that you're on here saying this right because it just shows everybody that it's okay I've, I'm okay what? with that and I love if I never knew you from Pocahontas because yeah, that was cut from the. Film. I agree. Yes, I agree with that, and yeah. we haven't talked about Pocahontas, which is the reason I don't bring it up uh, yet. But, yeah, but I do yeah. Love yeah. Okay, I'll give you that. Um, I'll give you that. Uh, that that works. That works. I draw the line at uh, Michael Bolton's. Uh, is it Mike, Michael Bolton? Yeah, in um, Hercules. The end. Oh my God! I draw the line there. Holy crap! He's just yelling. He's just yelling at us. He's just screaming at us. And I love that movie, and I love that score and oh, yeah. songs. Uh, brilliant. Brilliant work in that. We'll talk about that. Maybe I'll have you back for that one, too. I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to get we need to get um, a few more of our friends involved in that conversation. Um, so we're going to have we're gonna make a second podcast yes. together. We're going to do a second podcast about the stage adaptation of this. It's just too good to have it in one episode. It is, it is one of my favorites now. I love it. I love listening to it, and... Um, I would love to do it. Um, I just think it's brilliant. Uh, and they really, you know, we'll talk more about that. But uh, So you're going to be back, which I'm thrilled yes. about. How much fun. Um, and maybe we'll be better at this. Uh, maybe <laughs> I'll be better at this. I uh, When I started doing this podcast, I always wanted to bring people on to talk to them because I think it's more interesting to hear sure. a banter yeah. about something than just somebody droning on about yes. you know, what they liked sure. what they didn't like. Uh, so this has been great. I'm so happy that you 
wanted to come and do this. I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I I love what I love this podcast, and I love talking about Disney music. Yeah, what's not to love, right? And I love music. I mean, it's yeah, my life. exactly, so, yeah. exactly. You know, and my thing is, is that, and as I always say, um, whether you agree, disagree, it doesn't make any difference because the great thing about art and music is that everybody has an opinion, and every opinion is valid. Yes. I don't have to agree with you, right? Uh, but every opinion is valid. You're allowed to feel like exactly how you feel about it. I always say art's not art unless it pisses someone off. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And uh, well, this must be art because I know I'm pissing people off out there. So, um, <laughs> not hopefully not a lot of people, but uh, yeah. So great. So we'll meet again. Yes. Uh, and we'll do uh, part two of this and talk about the stage because Let's there's a lot to talk about that too, right? We, we don't have to we don't have to rehash a lot of what we've done. We can just remind people. Right. But I mean, there's a whole German version. There is to talk about. Der Glockner. It's right. That ran for three years almost. Yeah. yeah. In Germany. Yeah. Um, great. And Disney has kind of separated themselves from, which will make it interesting. Indeed. They the have. thing about this podcast is, I say, we talk about. You know, Disney music, Broadway, movie, whatever music we love is what we're going to talk about. So, I can't um, wait for the and radio. mainly Disney. I can't wait for the Radio Disney podcast. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Somebody asked me when I started this podcast, I was really struggling with what's the, what is my bailiwick, right? What am I, um, and for those of you who don't know what that means, it's like, what am I talking about? Like, I, because I felt like I had to kind of confine myself because this is a huge. Yeah. Topic, but then I thought maybe I don't because then I could just have a podcast forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I really have struggled with the Radio Disney thing because I know it's something I should talk about, but I don't listen to it mm-hmm. because I don't like it. I don't know if it exists anymore. It does. It does. It does. There's a Radio Disney here in Chicago. Thirteen hundred AM. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. yeah, it's an AM station here in Chicago. Oh, okay. Um, and you know, I understand that. You know, when I was a kid, I'm sure I was listening to music that my parents were like, oh my God, I can't believe he's listening to that crap. You know, at the time, I'm sure they were like, Cindy Lauper, really? You know, (laughs) Um, that shows you my age. Like I said, I grew up in the 80s. Um, And uh, so I have struggled with that, with what I want to do about Radio Disney. It's interesting that you bring that up. Yeah. That'll be an interesting. Well, yes. and interesting for you, it'll force me to have to listen to it. Yeah, yeah. Somebody also asked me if I was going to do High School music, Musical, and I pretty much drew the line. No. I said I no. <laughs> I, I don't consider that a musical. That's, right. That's right. That, that could be another episode. That's, yeah, no, no. I agree. All right, so we're in agreement with all that. Yeah. So, great. So, thanks again. Um, we'll uh, meet again to, Please, to do yeah. this. Thank you. Uh, and what fun. It's been great having you on, Thank Aaron. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's uh, a pleasure. It has been my pleasure and uh, such a joy. Uh, and let us know what you think. Please leave comments, good or bad. Um, you know, I want this to be a discussion. I don't want this to be just my opinion and assuming everybody agrees because I know that you don't, uh, which is all good. Uh, so thanks again for listening. I know this has been a really long episode, uh, but hopefully you've enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, we will talk soon. Take care, everybody. Now it's time to say goodbye. To all our company, M I C. See you real soon. K E Y. Why? Because we like you. M O.